When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. experience that the Nephite multitudes had with Jesus in chapter 17, being these concentric circles of compassion with Jesus in the middle and the little children around him and all of the multitudes surrounding them and the angels coming to minister encompassed about by heavenly fire. The Savior's still not done. Chapter 18 grows directly out of chapter 17 and I love what the Lord seems to be teaching us here, that if you too wish that the Lord would tarry a little longer with you. What should we do? Chapter 18, as I read it, is the Lord saying, I do eventually have to leave. He'll leave by the end of this chapter. But if you want to tarry with me longer, here are some things that you can be doing. He focuses in this chapter on four elements, four things that you and I can be doing frequently to invite the Lord to tarry a little longer with us. Those four things are the sacrament, prayer, church, and the Holy Ghost. Primary answers, but not primary in terms of juvenile, primary in terms of foundational. Everything else grows out of these. Verses 1 through 11 is the Lord's description of the sacrament. Verse 1, it came to pass that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should bring forth some bread and wine unto him. And while they were out finding it, he commands the rest of the multitude to sit down. Verse 3, once they've brought it, he took of the bread and brake and blessed it. He gave unto the disciples, commanded that they should eat. Then notice these phrases in 4 and 5. And when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded them to give to the multitude. And when the multitude had eaten and were filled. The same phrases appear in verse 9 regarding the wine. They did drink of it and were filled and then gave unto the multitude, and they did drink, and they were filled. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. The sacrament is meant to fill us. It's not about the biggest piece of bread or the fullest cup of water, like I used to look for on Fast Sunday as a child. It's our chance to be filled with things that are so much more filling than food ever could be. In verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, there shall one be ordained among you, and to him will I give power that he shall break bread and bless it, and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. Ordained. Power. He's speaking of priesthood authority here. And it does require power. It doesn't require much physical strength at all to break bread. But to bless and sanctify it, unto the souls of all those who partake of it, that does require power and authority from God. It's amazing what those 
15 and 16 and 17 year old priests are asking for in that prayer. Exercising the power of their priesthood to bless and sanctify something unto someone's soul. We don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. We don't believe that the bread and water change into the body and blood of Christ. But we do believe in a transubstantiation of sorts. It's not the emblems that change. It's the partakers of them that are supposed to. Am I being changed into someone more like Jesus every time I renew my covenants with him? And that is a change as miraculous as any doctrine of transubstantiation would be. I'm trying to be like Jesus, and the sacrament helps me do so. Now, that certainly doesn't happen after one time. It didn't happen when I first exercised faith or was baptized in his name. No wonder at the end of five, he's saying that we need to continue to do this for all those who started the process that way. But in verse six, you shall always observe to do this, even as I have done even as I've broken bread and blessed it and given it unto you. Verse 7, he explains in more detail. This shall ye do in remembrance of my body. This is a memorial, a commemoration. And notice it's not just in remembrance of the body which was broken and bruised for you. Here, the risen Lord is saying, do it in remembrance of my body which I have shown unto you. That's fascinating to me. Think not just about the death of Christ and his suffering and atonement, but also about his resurrection, that this is a living Lord that we are bringing into ourselves. This is a body that they just held, kissing his feet, bathing them with their tears, touching the marks in hands and feet, thrusting their hands into his side. This is a body, a person that they have come to know. Do we think about that when we partake of the sacrament? my own experiences with Jesus, times that I have come to know him. This is an act of intentional, worshipful remembering, putting it all back together, remembering. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that you do always remember me. I love that phrase too. Partaking of the sacrament is an act of testimony. Do you realize on fast and testimony meeting, whoever goes up to bear their testimony, that's actually the second testimony that they've borne that day. The first they did silently as they partook of the emblems of Christ's sacrifice. It was a testimony that they bore unto the Father that they will always remember him. It's part of what we promise in the sacrament prayer. And here's his promise to us. And if you do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. That's the promise found in both prayers over the bread and the water as well. Verse 11 repeats that idea of remembering, this time in the context of the wine. Ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood. And then this phrase, which also finds a parallel in the sacrament prayer, which I have shed for you. I love that phrase. I try to focus on it when I hear that prayer offered in sacrament meeting. To bless and sanctify this water to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy son, which was shed for them. Now, I know that can be taken collectively. Jesus' blood was shed for all of us. The atonement was infinite, but it was also intimate. As President Faust used to ask aloud, I wonder how many drops of blood were shed for me. Think about that the next time you hear that phrase on Sunday. 
the blood of thy son, which was shed for them, specifically, not just collectively. In fact, there are times to this day that I look for the cup with the most amount of water in it, not because I'm extra thirsty on Fast Sunday, but rather because I recognize just how much Jesus did for me, that I need a deeper cup because of the blood that was shed for me in Gethsemane, because of my sins. Please take the sacrament, but take it personally. And I don't know of another phrase that can be taken more personally than that one. And then verse 11 repeats for the wine, many of the promises made with the bread back in verse 7, that ye may witness unto the Father, again, testimony, witness, that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. Now go back a verse. Look at verse 10. He says to his disciples, Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, participating in the sacrament, administering it to others. For this is fulfilling my commandments, and this doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. Partaking of the sacrament is an act of obedience itself that bears witness to our desire for obedience in general. And notice how he starts verse 11. And this shall ye always do to those who repent and are baptized in my name. I love that the sacrament is not something that is done for us. It's something that is done to us. That when the teachers have prepared it and the priests have blessed it and the deacons have passed it, those holders of the Aaronic priesthood are doing something to the congregation through the ordinance that they are offering us. Remember, we're the things that are being transubstantiated. Always remembering him, having his spirit always with us. That's the change that is taking place. And if that lesson is suggested by the preposition, too, notice the verb, do. This is something you'll always do. You shall do it in remembrance. Do and did and done comes up so many times in this passage. The sacrament is something that you do, not just something that you have done to you. This is active rather than passive. Verse 6, this shall ye always observe to do, even as I have done. Verse 7, this shall ye do. Verse 10, blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done. Verse 11, this shall ye always do, and ye shall do it in remembrance. Verse 12, I've given to you a commandment that ye shall do these things. And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. We take so much of our worship life passively. We kind of sit there in church instead of fully engaging in what takes place there. The sacrament, we just have it passed to us and rather than allowing it to do something because we're doing something as well. We expect the Holy Ghost just to come unto us instead of us going out and fighting an opposition so that we can fully receive it. We'll talk more about that in a second. But all of these four areas that Jesus is talking about in chapter 18 need to be more actively engaged in if we expect them to do anything to us or for us. After all, that's the rock. And to build on a rock, it's a lot harder to drill down in and sink those pylons, build that foundation, rather than just, oh, just construct something on the sand. Now we're back to the way he ended the Sermon on the Mount, right? But in verse 12, when he talks about being built upon the rock, compare it to verse 13, whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, 
but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when, not if, the rains descend and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon them, they shall fall. And the gates of hell are ready open to receive them. Now some might wonder or worry, wait, we do a whole lot more in the church than just that. And here the Lord says, you shouldn't do any more or less than these things. Well, this might be another example of that idea of being connected to the true vine, of any dangling doctrine becomes a dead one. We talked about that before as well. But if everything we do in the church is based on our covenant connection to Christ, there's no appendage that's disconnected from the core. Thinking that there's more than being covenantly connected to Christ, that may be looking beyond the mark. Or aiming for anything less than that may be a waste of our time. How do we strengthen our connection to Christ? It's through our covenants. All that we do can be aiming towards that. Now from 15 to 21, the next subject, the next element that we can engage in to have the Lord tarry a little longer with us is prayer. And we'll see that repeated and re-emphasized even more greatly in chapter 19. In 16, he says, As I have prayed among you, even so shall ye pray in my church, among my people who do repent and are baptized in my name. Behold, I am the light. I have set an example for you. That's such a beautiful phrase. I'm the light of the world, right? Follow my example. Do what you've seen me do. But in context, he's specifically referring to prayer. I want you to know me as a praying Christ. And I want you to follow that example. Realize you can't do everything on your own, that you need divine help, that you need to be concerned for others. This is the kind of church I want to lead. Now, what else does he say about prayer? Go back to verse 15. You must watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil, and ye be led away captive by him. Jump ahead to 18. He says the same thing. You must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Very similar to what he said to Peter in the New Testament. And like I said, 15 and 18 seem to be the same thing. But the audience has shifted slightly. The first time he said it, it was directed at the disciples. See, back in verse 10, when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them. So the next five verses are all focused on them. Then in verse 17, he turns his attention from the disciples back to the multitude and repeats to them, you also need to watch and pray. You need to be doing the same thing that the disciples, the apostles are doing, just like they need to be doing the same thing that I am doing. You never outgrow the need to pray because you never outgrow the temptations of the adversary. Not in this life, at least. The Lord is holding us all to that standard and promising us the same deliverance from the devil if we will watch and pray always. No wonder he says in 19, again, ye must always pray unto the Father in my name. Verse 20, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, important condition there, believing that ye shall receive, another essential condition, behold, it shall be given unto you. So the ask and ye shall receive promise that appears almost everywhere in scripture, here's two clarifying phrases. Keep in mind the will of God and the faith of the person praying. When those two elements come together, it's right. It's the will of God. And you believe you have faith. And of course, ask and ye shall receive becomes a perfect promise. Verse 21, we see that prayer expanded beyond the individual and onto their families. Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. There is something about family prayer that's different from individual prayer. 
And there's something about outward prayer, praying for others, that's different than inward prayer, praying for self. Then from 22 to 25, the next element he emphasizes is the church. 22, he says, ye shall meet together oft. Ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together, but suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. Hence the visitor's welcome sign on the outside of all of our chapels. Now, why would they need to be told this? Who would they possibly be tempted to forbid from coming? Well, throughout the history of Christianity, at least, or anywhere really where there's a sense of a chosen people, we want to separate sheep from goats, or worse, sheep from wolves in sheep's clothing. In early Puritan days, there was a sense of we want a gathered community of what they called visible saints. There was almost a sense of, well, bear your testimony to us and we'll critique it. And if we really feel that you're one of the elect of God, then we'll let you in. Otherwise, you're not allowed to come. There was even a sort of a sense of that creeping into early the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To the point that in section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, they had to ask the Lord, are we doing this church thing right? And the Lord says, not quite. You need to be more open and make sure that everyone knows that they are welcome to come. So here they're having a similar experience. 23, ye shall pray for them and shall not cast them out. If it so be that they come unto you oft, ye shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. Don't cast out the wicked or unworthy. Instead, pray for them. 24, therefore hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up that which ye have seen me do. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father, and ye all have witnessed. Again, the example I want you to set is that of a praying people, a people who believe in the Father and the Son, a people that show that they need and seek heaven's help in all that they do, a people that turn their thoughts and their feelings, their prayers upward and outward, not just inward. And if that's one thing you see that I do in 24, then in 25, here's another thing you see that I do. Another thing that needs to be part of the light you hold up to the world. 25, ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that ye should come unto me, that ye might feel and see. Even so shall ye do unto the world, and whosoever breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. 25 is a fascinating verse. Again, in the context of I'm the light that you're supposed to hold up, what do I want people to see in this city on a hill? What do I want them to see when you remove the bushel from the candlestick? You need to see a praying people, just like I pray, and you need to see an inclusive, a welcoming, an embracing people, just like I am all of those things. I don't command anyone to leave. I command them to come and you need to be equally inviting. Remember we talked about this last time in chapter 15 and 16, that a chosen people are only chosen as long as they choose to choose all the unchosen to be chosen as well. Is that enough chosens for you? That this is exclusivity on the way to inclusivity. That if you kink the hose, then there's no reason for me to send any water through it. It's not getting to the end of any row. It's not about you, it's about everyone else. That's me as the Savior. That's got to be you as my people. We have to be more inclusive as members of the church to the wicked, to the unworthy, to the doubtful, to the wondering, the questioning, to the different, the marginalized, the lowly, the little ones, you name it. We have to be more inclusive. That is part of the light 
that the Lord is asking us to shine unto the world. The Lord is not asking us to diminish our claim to the first great commandment. Our vertical dimension of discipleship needs to be set in the rock itself. That is the vertical post in the cross itself. But upon that cross, it does nothing. There is no place for divinity itself to hold on to unless there is a horizontal crossbeam where we reach out to all others around us. We don't have to lessen our obedience in order to increase our inclusion. We should be the most diligent and devoted disciples imaginable, but we should also be the most loving and compassionate and welcoming in all the world. It is hard to be both. That's the paradox. That's the proving of contraries. That's the contradiction that lies at the heart of the cross. But that's what Christianity calls us to be to embrace both law and love, both truth and tolerance. Most of us seem to lean naturally in one direction or the other, but do not exclude the other half of the pair. Now, having spoken this to the multitude, so this, the church, talking about the church, now 26, he turns back to the disciples for some administrative instructions related to the gathering together of the church. So 27, I give unto you another commandment, just to the, the, the disciples now, church leaders, and then I must go unto my Father, that I may fulfill other commandments which he hath given me. I've got commandments for you, just like the Father has some commandments for me. And you've got to be doing yours so that I can be doing mine. So here's your administrative instructions. 28, ye shall not suffer anyone knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily when ye shall minister it. For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. Therefore, if ye know that a man is unworthy to eat and drink of my flesh and blood, ye shall forbid him. Hmm, so this is back to the first great commandment. Again, in our zeal to shift to the second, don't lose sight of the first. We're doing both of it. It's both and, not either or. So there's still a standard here, okay? In those two verses, there's a sense of you disciples, you leaders of my church, you need to be incredibly welcoming to all. He'll repeat that in a second. He's always going back and forth between the two great commandments because, again, it's tough to prove those contraries simultaneously. But here, you have to protect the sanctity of the sacrament. I've been so impressed with that, even in my own ward and stake, as we've tried to navigate COVID rules and quarantining and everything else. It took a while before our stake president and bishop gave us permission to administer the sacrament in our own homes. And I was actually grateful for that because it reminded me, at least in my family, that it's not just up to us. We don't just do it because, hey, I've got the priesthood and I can do whatever I want. No, this is the Lord's kingdom. His is a house of order, that there are priesthood keys that preside over the ordinances. And those who hold them are meant to maintain the sanctity of all those sacraments. I remember a few years ago being in a country with my family that does not recognize the church. There's nowhere in the country where Latter-day Saints can come together to meet. And I asked permission from my bishop, can we hold a sacrament meeting as a family as we come together in this place where we couldn't do it otherwise? And he gave us that permission. To me, it just struck me as having both of those, another balance, the individual power and authority of the priesthood, but also the supervisory authority of priesthood keys individuality and community, freedom and order, all these interesting balances that we can strike, that we need to strike. Now, of course, the way he phrases that in verse 28 and 29 
probably raises some eyebrows and we worry, uh-oh, what does it mean to be not worthy of partaking of the sacrament? At what point should a priesthood leader stop someone from partaking it? Or at what point should we choose not to partake of it ourselves? Honestly, I think only the Holy Ghost can answer that in specific situations. But as far as a general principle is concerned, do we want to protect the sanctity of the sacrament? Or do we just take it for granted? Is it something that we... Of course, we're not perfect. If we were, we wouldn't need it. But I want to be better. I am repenting of my sins. I am choosing to renew covenants because I need to renew them. I need to repent. If we're looking inward, instead of just assuming that the outward is sufficient, in fact, it reminds me of the story in the Old Testament when the Israelites were so focused on the ark at the expense of the covenant. Remember the ark of the covenant, Moses and the Israelites and so on. Well, separate the, the two words in that phrase. And one is the ark, that's the box. And then there's the covenant, what goes inside. And I love that to separate the external from the internal here. Unfortunately, later in the history of Israel, particularly in the days of Eli, when the boy Samuel was growing up in the tabernacle, Israelites started focusing more on the ark and less on the covenant. They were fixated on the outward. As long as we have it, we're fine. So at one point, they're fighting the Philistines, and they say, well, we're losing, but hey, if we just brought the ark of the covenant into battle, then we'd win. We'd be undefeated as long as the ark is there, because then if the ark is there, then God has to be there, right? I mean, this is kind of the, the Nazi mentality in Indiana Jones, the first, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's why they wanted the ark. They didn't care about the covenant. Well, the same thing is happening in ancient Israel. So unworthily, the army of Israel takes the Ark of the Covenant. They partake of the emblem. They bring it out into the battlefield, and they lose. They not only lose the battle, they lose the Ark because they'd lost the Covenant a long time before. And now it's the Philistines' turn. And what do the Philistines do? They parade around the Ark of the Covenant. They put it into their temple as like this new trophy. It's like when there's a rivalry, you know, and whoever wins gets to bring the, you know, the wagon wheel or the boot or whatever the symbol might be, this, this token of this rivalry. And we get to put it in our trophy case this year. Well, that's what was happening there. And yet the irony is, if you read that story, the Philistines who unworthily have the ark in their temple, it ends up spreading a plague throughout Philistine territory. To the point that they finally just put the ark on a, on a cart and send the oxen just wandering and they find their way back to Israelite territory. I see in that case, the Philistines taking these emblems, it did them more harm than good because it was ark removed from covenant. Same was happening with Israel. As long as the covenant is our focus and we are striving to be worthy of it, that having fallen, we're picking ourselves up, that we're taking the sacrament seriously. Or maybe a better way to say it is, which will help you take the sacrament more seriously? Taking it or not taking it? Which will help you focus on the covenant and the need to do our best to follow its commandments? For some, that might be having a period of time where they are not permitted to partake of the sacrament, to fast from that ordinance for a time, in hopes that it increases your hunger and thirst after righteousness, so that then by partaking of it again in the future, you can indeed be filled with the Holy Ghost. For others, it's exactly what I need. I need to partake of this to renew the covenant that I have wondered if I've broken. Again, the Holy Ghost will be the best judge of that, and so can a judge in Israel. But whichever is decided, whether you partake or don't partake, whether you're worthy of it or unworthy of it, 
don't let the first great commandment get in the way of keeping the second. You've got to live them both. So verse 30, again he repeats, Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him, and shall pray for him unto the Father. That's hard to do if you've completely rejected them or cast them out. Minister to them, pray for them in my name. If it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in my name, then shall ye receive him and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. The process begins anew. But, verse 31, if he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my sheep. For behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship. Just continue to minister. It's amazing that he keeps going back and forth. I mean, if you notice how those words, those verses begin, way back in 22, meet together often, don't forbid anyone from coming. 23, pray for them, don't cast them out. But then 28, but be careful about the sacrament. Don't let them partake of it unworthily. 30, nevertheless, don't cast them out. 31, but if he doesn't repent, then don't number them among my people. 32, nevertheless, don't cast them out. You see what he's trying to do here? The the buts and the neverthelesses, back and forth. He's trying to find this middle ground, and that's always hard to find. The Goldilocks zone is often narrow. And trying to prove contraries, that's a balance that's difficult to strike. It'd just be easy to say, nope, we're just going to live the first great commandment. And we're going to have a gathered community of visible saints and no one else is allowed in. You don't pass muster, then you don't come in the door. Or it's really easy to be totally open and, and welcoming and embracing and to heck with any commandments of God. There's no standard here. The church of relativism, oh, that one's, all doors are open. But to live both of the two great commandments? To balance love and law and truth and tolerance, to prove those contraries, that's tough. And it's going to take constant course correction, which I believe is exactly what the church has been trying to do with some of its policies and clarifications of those policies. It's a but, nevertheless, but, nevertheless, and trying to find that middle ground, balancing the two great commandments. Now go back to 31. Interesting what he says. If they don't repent, again, don't cast them out, but don't number them among my people. Otherwise, it might end up destroying my people. And as a good shepherd, I can't let that happen to my sheep because I know them. They're numbered to me. With the policy back in 2015 about the children of same-sex couples and the policy clarification in 2019 about the same issue, and that was one that caused huge angst among people. I had a, a line out my door and, and emails and texts and instant messages blowing up my inbox back in 2015, trying to make sense of that. And again, as I read it, as I see it, it's trying to find this balance between the two great commandments. But there were all kinds of questions about church discipline over those issues, because that was part of what was taking place as the disciplined chapter in the Church Handbook of Instructions was being clarified. And unfortunately, in the furor that erupted over it all, it seemed like the actual disciplined chapter in the handbook got lost in the shuffle. In fact, in certain circles, they called that 2015 policy the POX, the P-O-X, the policy of exclusion, which is never what it was intended to be. This was not some kind of power play trying to get retribution or keep people out of the church. No, it was simply a matter of how do we balance these things. The church did an incredible job of differentiating between homosexuality as a part of the mortal condition for some of God's children that requires no discipline because there's no sin attached. There should be no stigma, no shame, no guilt. It's the second stage, homosexual behavior, where all of a sudden there is opportunity for sin and repentance. And discipline may be necessary and may not be. 
as opposed to same-sex marriage, where all of a sudden now we're talking about not a, some kind of moral sin, but rather an intellectual apostasy. That's how it was labeled in that policy. That distinction is essential to draw. Not a moral sin, but an intellectual one. Not immorality, but rather apostasy. And to treat those two things differently. That discipline may or may not have been needed with the moral sin. Leave that up to a discerning bishop and, an, and a repentant soul. But with same-sex marriage, all of a sudden, now you're describing a different plan of salvation, which you're welcome to do. You can believe anything that you want. But to teach that as the restored gospel, that's not the plan as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. So we'll need to have a disciplinary council just to see, do you intend to, to teach this? Is this what you're pushing for in the church? Or is it a matter of, no, we believe in the gospel. We love the plan of salvation. There's just one thing I lack. I cannot bring myself to keep that commandment. I don't know how it's going to work. That will be between God and myself. But for our children, we want them to have to be blessed as babies and baptized as eight-year-olds. We believe in the gospel. We believe in the plan. It will probably be easier for them to live all of those commandments, including this one that we can't bring ourselves to obey right now. And in those cases, as President Nelson himself said in a BYU address, every time they asked for the exception, and can we please bless or baptize our children, permission was always granted. You see the balance that they're trying to strike between law and love and truth and tolerance, between the two great commandments? Church disciplinary councils are not the courts of inquisition that some people try to make them out to be. I've participated in probably close to 20 of them in my years in different bishoprics. And they are some of the most powerful spiritual experiences I've ever had. And judging from the person that is being judged, for them as well. It's amazing to watch that when it comes to the atonement, Jesus doesn't delegate that very far. That's his territory. And he knows just how just and just how merciful to be. And we pleading with him to know how to strike that balance as well. It's interesting that as I reviewed the chapter on church discipline, in the midst of all that chaos that erupted over those policies and people's reactions to them more than anything, or I should say overreactions to them, and I saw it happen in both 2015 and 2019. But to understand what discipline has always been for, to save the soul of the sinner, to protect the innocent, to safeguard the good name of the church, that's what it's always been for. And those purposes seem to get lost in the shuffle in all of that. It's interesting because more recently, the church changed some of the language in that chapter, membership councils rather than disciplinary councils. But the change that surprised me even more it was actually really reassuring, was the same three purposes of discipline apply, but they change the order of the first and the second. I'd always felt very comfortable with the old order. Save the soul of the sinner should come first and foremost. But the more I've thought about that, and the more I've heard stories of particularly the victims of other people's sin, rape victims, abuse victims, for example, first and foremost should be protect the innocent, the victim should be the first concern, the perpetrator the second, and the church a distant third. But to see that that's the new order of things, same three purposes, but different order. Now in the church handbook, the number one reason is to help protect others. Number two, to help a person access the redeeming power of Jesus Christ through repentance. And number three, protect the integrity of the church. I love that reversal, and it never made the news. 
you see what the Lord is trying to help them balance here? I cannot let you destroy my people, he says in 31. I know my sheep. I will protect them from any wolf in sheep's clothing trying to enter the flock. But again, 32, nevertheless, trying to find that delicate balance, don't cast them out. As he says at the end of this verse, and I love these phrases, you know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart and I shall heal them and ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. You see that synergism there? I'll do the healing, but you can be part of the means of salvation, bringing it unto them. You kept ministering unto them. You kept praying for them. You kept working and worrying and fasting and serving and doing everything you could. That's the love side of things. Even as you're trying to help them keep the law side of things and trying to keep it yourself. That's a tough balance to strike. No wonder this is counsel given to the disciples, the, the, the administrative instructions. This is a little mini excerpt from the church handbook of instructions for these Nephite leaders. And they've got to learn to strike this balance themselves. Notice what he says in 33 to them. Keep these sayings which I have commanded you, that ye come not under condemnation, for woe unto him whom the Father condemneth. And condemnation can come on either side of the Goldilocks zone. You were too strict and didn't save the soul of the sinner. You were too lenient and didn't protect the innocent. It is so hard to find that balance. That is why you plead and pray for heaven's guidance in this. And we don't always get it right. 34, neither did they. I give unto you these commandments because of the disputations which have been among you. Blessed are ye if you have no disputations among you. He keeps bringing that up. Said it back in chapter 11, right? Quit disputing about baptism, contentions of the devil. I'm glad you're trying to reach orthodoxy, but the path towards it has to be paved by unity and peace. Same thing's happening here. And talk about an opportunity for disputation. Anytime there's a balance, anytime there's contraries, there's going to be one that's too far on the right and others that are too far on the left. As both groups need to nudge themselves and draw each other into the Goldilocks zone in between. I imagine that this disputation over discipline was probably with some wanting to be too strict and others wanting to be too lenient, too hot and too cold. And the Lord is saying, you've got to get it just right. Now, 35, again, he tries to pry <laughs> these people away as they want to remain with him longer. Now I go unto the Father. I know I said that like two chapters ago, but I'm serious. I got to go. It is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. Now, that's an interesting one. It's not despite my love for you that I'm going to leave. It's because of my love for you, I need to. It's for your sake. Whether Christ is with us or away from us, whether we feel a great outpouring of the Spirit or seem to feel that it's left us for a time, all of those things are meant for our sake. Remember Nephi, way back in the beginning, says that. He doesn't do anything save it be for the benefit of the world because he loves the world. It's all for our sake. But he's going to be a little bit more specific as far as how is this for our sake, this departure. And it parallels something he said in the New Testament. It came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of these sayings, he touched with his hands the disciples whom he'd chosen one by one. That's always how he seems to work. He speaks unto them as he touched them. And in 37, we find out what he said. The disciples bear record that he gave them power to give the Holy Ghost. Now we see the parallel to the New Testament. 
In the book of John, Jesus says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So there, here's the first hint about this for your sake idea. I'm leaving you, he says to his apostles. And if you loved me, if you knew how much the Father loved you, you'd rejoice that I'm leaving. This is for your sake. And then later in John, he adds this. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. I love that passage. The Spirit is our gift when we miss Jesus. It's the Spirit of God that reminds us of and prepares us for the Son of God. God's Son or God's Spirit, either way, God wants to connect with us. And Jesus himself, the second member of the Godhead, is saying, for your sake I need to leave so that the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost, can fully function in your life. We don't know all the reasons why. I don't know if it was you know, one member of the Godhead at a time. I, I don't completely understand. But for some reason, during Christ's mortal ministry, the ministry of the Holy Ghost was on pause. And it wasn't until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that cloven tongues of fire come and, and fill the apostles with the power of the Holy Ghost. And they're a different group of men in the book of Acts than ever they were in the Gospels. There seems to be something along those lines with the Savior always elevating other people, putting them for, allowing them to do things beyond what he did himself. seems that he does the same thing with the Holy Ghost. Remember, you get the three of members in, uh, of the Godhead in a room and ask who's the most important, and all three point to the other two. We see that repeatedly throughout 3 Nephi. But I love this as the fourth element of what do you do when you want Jesus to tarry a little longer? What do you do when you miss the power of God in your life? Turn to the sacrament. Keep your covenants. You pray and pray and pray some more. Come to church. Gather together with others who are struggling and trying and succeeding and failing and, and but and nevertheless and trying to come together and keep both commandments. And throughout it all, seek the Spirit of God. We'll see more of that in chapter 19 also. In fact, we'll see more of all of these elements in chapter 19. But seek the Spirit. You know, years ago, there was a talk that Elder Von J. Featherstone gave at BYU. This would have been 2001. And he told an experience he had the year before at a General Authority training that went along with the April 2000 General Conference. That was a major one. The Conference Center was going to be used for the first time. This, this birthday present, so to speak, for Jesus in the year 2000. But as part of the General Authority training that coincided with that General Conference, Elder Featherstone said that President Boyd K. Packer, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, taught the general authorities something that Elder Featherstone described as the most powerful training he'd ever received in his 29 years as a general authority. So he would have learned directly from people like Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, Spencer W. Kimball, Ezra Taft Benson, Howard W. Hunter, President Gordon B. Hinckley, the big guns, right? And yet he said this message from President Packer blew away everything he'd ever heard before. It was life-changing for him, he said, and he assumed for all the general authorities that were there. Well, that piqued my curiosity. Well, what, what did he talk about? Tell, tell us, Elder Featherstone. And he did. He said that President Packer had paid an incredible price to be prepared to teach anything the Lord wanted him to, to these general authorities. 
knowing that then they would teach the rest of the church. President Packer reread Jesus the Christ. And when he was done with that, he reread The Life of Christ by Frederick Farrar, another incredible book. Then, interesting choice, he read Fox's Book of Martyrs, the story of all those who had given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries. And then he reread the standard works, every verse that had anything to do with the Spirit of God. Now, you've probably given talks before, and you probably prepared for them. Well, how much did you prepare for them? Elder Packer paid a price to the point that God could have taught him anything. And what was the lesson? What was the takeaway after all this work? Teach the members of the church that they need to live worthy of the Holy Ghost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of their lives. Now, as soon as Elder Featherstone said that, I was almost underwhelmed. I thought, well, I could have told you that without reading any of this stuff. And actually, that's true. But the fact that Elder Packer taught that after reading all of this, when the Lord could have told him anything else, that that was the takeaway, that should rivet our attention. Lay all of these other books aside. And what do we learn? We have to have the Holy Ghost. And that is what the Lord is giving those disciples. The power to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. You miss me? You want to be with me? Then seek the Spirit. And my departure and the Spirit's arrival will all be for your sake. I started paying attention after hearing that from Elder Featherstone. And sure enough, I was amazed as the years went on how often apostles and prophets would speak of the need for the Holy Ghost in our lives. What has President Nelson been speaking about recently and repeatedly? That we have to be ready to receive revelation, one of the great purposes of the Holy Ghost in our lives. We're not going to make it through these chaotic last days without that divine guidance from the third member of the Godhead. President Irene said it in 2002, you must choose to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The words of confirmation into the church are an invitation. Receive the Holy Ghost. And that choice must be made not once, but every day, every hour, every minute. Receive the Holy Ghost. As a missionary, confirming people in Spanish, we use the command form of the verb. So that if we were being complete when we say it, we wouldn't say, and I confirm you a member and say unto you, I really hope that the Holy Ghost comes. No, it's I say unto you, you better receive the Holy Ghost. I love that word receive because as a football player, I was a receiver. Four years of high school, a year of college, I loved receiving the ball, but there was nothing passive about it. You don't just stand there and have the quarterback drill a perfect spiral so it gets lodged in your face mask and then the linemen come and pick you up and carry you into the end zone while the crowd goes wild. No, You're fighting to get off the line and get away from the enemy and find a spot where you can be open and then come back for the ball and grab it and protect it and do something with it. That's receiving. And so to receive the Holy Ghost, how engaged, how active are you in trying to grab it to make sure that you're qualified to receive it and then to act upon its promptings? That's the last thing Jesus does before he leaves them. And as soon as that has taken place, 38 and 39, a 
cloud comes and overshadows the multitude so that they can't see Jesus. And we would assume he can't see them. He can't see tear-filled eyes wishing and wanting him to tarry still longer. With that, he departs from them and ascends into heaven. But what happens next? Quit looking heavenward and start looking around at what's taking place on the ground and notice what you see in chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had ascended into heaven, the multitude did disperse. Every man took his wife and his children, returned to his own homes. That's the first thing he said to do, right? You're overwhelmed. It's all over your head. Go home. But then verse 2, they didn't leave it there. They wanted to keep the first great commandment, but they recognized there's a second great commandment waiting in the wings. And so they noise abroad among the people immediately before it was yet dark that the multitude had seen Jesus, that he had ministered unto them, that he would show himself on the morrow unto the multitude. You see what they're doing? Verse 3, even all the night it was noised abroad concerning Jesus. And how do they respond to that good news? An exceedingly great number did labor exceedingly all that night that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself unto the multitude. How hard do I labor to be in the place where I might have the Savior minister unto me? Am I trying to put myself into those kinds of places, whether it's a physical place like church or general conference or a spiritual place preparing my mind for the morrow? Again, this is active more than passive. This is receiving instead of just waiting for it to come. And you see why they're working so hard to get there? What was the news they heard? People had seen Jesus. He ministered unto them and he said he'd do it again. He's coming back for more. I love seeing that in my institute students. When they're having such powerful experiences in the scriptures and in class that they just want to spread the word. And it's not some kind of twisting of the arm like, you know, you should share these things. It's more of a, how can I not to? That's when things go viral, right? Well, here the ministry of Christ is going viral and they can't help it. It comes so naturally, the desire to share and the desire to accept what is being shared, to extend and to accept the invitation. We're finding Jesus. He's coming back. We have incredible experiences in the scriptures all the time. You got to come and join us. That's how the initial disciples and apostles gathered to Jesus in the New Testament. Word of mouth, you got to meet this guy. Woman at the well telling the whole Samaritan village, this is the Messiah. He knows everything I've ever done. Come and see. Honestly, I think one of the reasons my wife was such an incredible missionary is because it was so natural for her. After five years of total inactivity, leaving the church and God behind, when she had a mighty change of heart and returned, she was all in to the point that sharing the good news with it, I mean, she noised things abroad all the time. And missionary work never felt like a burden or even a duty. It was just a natural consequence of what Jesus had done for her. She's been noising that good news abroad ever since. It's amazing. Now in verse 4, we get to meet the 12 Nephite disciples, all by name. Now Jesus still isn't there yet, but the disciples are. By the end of verse 4, it came to pass that they went forth and stood in the midst of the multitude exactly where you'd expect them, right? Just like Nephi had to be called out from among the multitude, they don't consider themselves better or separate from their among us. Verse 5, Behold, the multitude was so great that they did cause that they should be separated into twelve bodies. 
The teacher-student ratio needs to be such that ministering can happen. Verse 6, the twelve did teach the multitude, and they did cause that the multitude should kneel down upon the face of the earth and should pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus. In verse 7, they pray and minister to the people. In 8, the things that they minister and teach them is exactly what Jesus had taught them directly. Nothing varying from the words which Jesus had spoken. And as soon as they've done that, they kneel again and continue to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And notice verse 9, what they pray for. They did pray for that which they most desired, and they desired that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. The Savior's last act from the day before rested heavy on their minds. What we want most is what Jesus seemed most interested in giving us. It was for our sakes that he was leaving to make room for the Spirit to come. Verse 10 through 14, then they all descend to the water and are baptized. We would assume rebaptized, which was actually a common practice in the early days of the restored church as well, a sign of recommitting. Again, the sacrament does that for us as well. But to renew our covenants with Christ, what better way to invite the Holy Ghost into our lives? And that's exactly what happens. In 13, after they've come back up from the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This seems to be a repetition of what happened to the little children. After all, these people are becoming as little children themselves, starting over, coming forth from the water. Verse 14, Behold, they were encircled about as if by fire, and it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness it and did bear record, and angels did come down out of heaven and did minister unto them. It's during that angelic ministry that in verse 15, Jesus comes and stands in their midst and begins to minister to them himself. You see the order here? They're humbling themselves. They're repenting of their sins. They're renewing covenants through Aaronic ordinances, baptism, which then prepares them for Melchizedek ordinances, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the ministering of angels, that's Aaronic again, preparing them for the visitation of deity himself, Jesus. That's Melchizedek. You see this often throughout the Old Testament. Angels versus God. Aaronic versus Melchizedek. All of these things are, again, crescendoing up to Christ. Now in 16, notice what he does. He speaks unto the multitude and commands that they should kneel down again upon the earth. Uh, disciples as well. Now we've already seen a whole lot of praying going on in 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. I mean, the word pray or prayer or prayed comes up 28 times in this chapter. And there's only 36 verses in the whole thing. I mean, he is emphatic. You want to stay connected to me, then prayer is your answer. But an interesting difference in this particular prayer, notice verse 18. Behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. Now that's odd, and the Lord knows it. In fact, he kind of excuses them in verse 22 when he says, Father, thou hast given them the Holy Ghost because they believe in me. That's one thing he's very grateful for. We'll see that in a second. Thou seest that they believe in me because thou hearest them, and they pray unto me, and then as almost, again, as if to excuse them, and they pray unto me because I am with them. The only reason they're doing that to me, I know I've already told them that they need to pray unto the Father in the name of Christ. This is our Father which art in heaven. But since I'm actually here, right here among them, I'm with them. What is a prayer, really? It's a petition of deity. Well, Jesus is 
deity as well. They were praying to the Father before, and Jesus has come. And is there a sense, again, of like Father, like Son? Is there a sense of asking Him for continued blessings? Elder McConkie described it this way. Jesus was present before them as the symbol of the Father. Seeing him, it was as though they saw the Father. Praying to him, it was as though they prayed to the Father. It was a special and unique situation that, as far as we know, has taken place only once on earth during all the long ages of the Lord's hand dealings with his children. This was an exceptional circumstance with an exceptional prayer taking place. Now go back and see more of what Jesus says as they are praying. You see, as they're praying in 18, he then separates himself from them in 19. We're going to see this repeated three times in this chapter. It's interesting to watch the back and forth of Jesus. 19, he departs out of their midst. He goes a little way off, bows himself to the earth, and notice his prayer to the Father. Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Interesting how many times the Lord has remarked upon their faith, their belief in me. That's why I'm choosing them out of the world, because they are choosing me instead of the world. They're choosing to live in such a way that the Holy Ghost can be with them, to take the Spirit of God instead of succumb to the Spirit of the world. Verse 21, Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all them that shall believe in their words. There's still a lot of noising abroad that will yet take place throughout Christian history. Please send the Spirit to them as well. We already read 22 and then 23. Now, Father, I pray unto thee for them and also for all those who shall believe in their words. Again, these concentric circles, the ripples in the pond continuing to spread globally. I pray for them that they may believe in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. Honestly, 3 Nephi 19 is the Nephite equivalent of John chapter 17. That great intercessory prayer that the Lord offered right before Gethsemane. Well, now this is an intercessory prayer that he is offering after Gethsemane and Calvary and the empty tomb. It was the atonement, the at-one-ment, that made this kind of unity possible in the first place. And he's asking that it will continue to be of effect in people's lives, that disciples, one and all, can become one with each other and one with God. The way he said it in John 17, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The world's going to know that Christ has come when we can prove that we can become one in him, keeping both great commandments. Exclusion in pursuit of inclusion. That's what at one is meant to accomplish. That's the oneness that defines the members of the Godhead. It is not the doctrine of the Trinity that forces them all to be one in substance. That's certainly not what he's asking for his apostles and disciples to become. One big mega apostle as they all fuse into one. No, to be one in purpose, to be one in spirit, to have no distinction, disputation. It's thinking alike, acting alike, perfect accord, unity, at one moment. In verse 24, as soon as the Lord prays for that, he then goes back to the disciples. They still continue without ceasing to pray unto him. And notice this, they did not multiply many words 
This was not vain repetition. Even though the prayer itself seemed to be lasting quite a while, it was given unto them what they should pray for, and they were filled with desire. You want your prayers to become more meaningful and less vain or repetitious? Then let desire fill you, and let the Lord guide your words. The Spirit helpeth with groanings that cannot be uttered, Paul said. When my kids were little, I whispered in their ears what to pray for. We're not supposed to grow out of that. Heavenly Father, help me know what I should want. Please educate my desires. And he will. And then notice 25. It came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him. And his countenance did smile upon them. And the light of his countenance did shine upon them. And behold, they were as white as the countenance and also the garments of Jesus. And behold, the whiteness thereof did exceed all the whiteness. Yea, even there could be nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness thereof. This is white like the fruit of the tree of life. This is purity, like Jesus alone can help us achieve. This is the whiteness of pure, perfect, brilliant light. And he is the light of the world. And they are shining right alongside him. This is a transfiguration. And it is a blessing that the Lord gives them, akin to the priestly blessing given in the Old Testament. There's actually an amazing resource I just discovered. It's called evidencecentral.org. It's similar to the Book of Mormon Central resource that's incredible. And there'll be a Pearl of Great Price Central and a Doctrine and Covenant Central. A lot, uh, just a wonderful centralized resource that members of the church and others can go to to access insight and information about the gospel. And Evidence Central is meant to simply to help people see that faith does have a rational leg to stand on. And just a, a day or two ago, they posted an interesting insight based on verse 25. That what Jesus is doing here finds its roots in an Old Testament practice that took place on the Day of Atonement. Seems very appropriate that the atoning one himself is doing this on the heels of praying that his people may become at one with each other and with him. And Aaron, or the high priest in ancient Israel, would pronounce this blessing upon the people. This is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. Keep an eye on 3 Nephi 19.25 as you hear it. The Lord bless thee. That's exactly what he's doing and keep thee. That's what he wants to do forever. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. Now that's a Hebrew idiomatic expression that means to smile. The word smile itself never appears in the Old Testament, but this is the expression that describes it. Some other translations even translate it in that way. And what's Jesus doing in 25? He is smiling upon them. Back to Numbers. And be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And that's exactly what's happening as the Lord blesses them and smiles upon them and shines the light of his countenance upon them too. This is the Nephite version of the Mount of Transfiguration experience that Peter, James, and John have. This is Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. This is the tree of life and white above all that is white. In verse 26, I don't think he even had to say it, but Jesus says unto them, pray on. Sure enough, they did not cease to pray. But I love that. Just keep going. Keep going. Verse 27, he turns from them again. So a second time, he separates himself. He goes a little way off and bows himself to the earth, and he prayed again to the Father, 
and compare this prayer to what he just offered about thank you for sending them the Holy Ghost. Now 28, Father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. And I pray for them and also for them who shall believe on their words that they may be purified in me through faith on their words even as they are purified in me. Isn't that one of the great purposes of the Holy Ghost? As a purifier, baptized by water, that's one cleansing element. Baptized by fire, that's another cleansing and purifying element. He continues in 29, Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world because of their faith, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one, that I may be glorified in them. Again, there's so many parallels between this and John 17. He talks about the world a lot in that prayer as well. So you see what he's praying for each time? Please bless them with the Holy Ghost. The Spirit can make them one. Please bless them with purity because it's our impurities, our iniquity that divides us, that separates us from one from another. It keeps us from being at one. In verse 30 then, Jesus returns to the disciples. They're still praying steadfastly without ceasing. Again, he smiles upon them. Again, they are transfigured white, even as Jesus. And then 31, a third time, he goes a little way off and prays unto the Father. Now, like I said, it's interesting to see these three separations. Three times he's with them and then he separates and then goes back and then separates. And each time they're praying and he goes off and prays himself. This is what Gethsemane should have been, in my opinion because there are three interruptions to his great pleading and agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. As he goes back the first time and sees the apostles asleep and says, could you not watch with me one hour? And then he goes back and prays and suffers and atones and he goes back and he sees that they are sleeping again. And he goes back and prays and atones and suffers and goes back a third time and finally says, sleep on, get your rest. I don't think it's coincidental that there were those three breaks in the prayer of atonement. Just like here, there are these three breaks as he prays for their at one But it's Jesus stopping, and every time he comes back, they're still praying for the same things he wants for them. I think it's so beautiful what's happening here. And what would the third time be if the first was receive the Spirit so you can be one, and they're transfigured? And the second was pray for purity, that they can be one, and they're transfigured. Then what, how do you crescendo beyond that? What's the third? Well, you may have guessed that we can't guess what this third time would be. Just like the prayers that Jesus offered back in chapter 17, verse 32, tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. But the multitude heard, they bore record, their hearts were open. They understood in their hearts the words which he prayed. I can't explain it. I can't tell it to you. I can't write it down. But there's something life-changing that only your heart, your bowels, your nobler entrails, those inward parts, only there can we fully understand the love that God and his Son have for us. That's empathy. That's compassion. That's the fellowship of suffering, as Paul called it. Verse 34, so great and marvelous were the words which he prayed 
that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came again to the disciples and said unto them, So great faith. See how many times he's observed that in them and remarked upon it. So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews. Wherefore, I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. None of them have ever seen so great things as ye have seen. They have not heard so great things as ye have heard. Now think about all the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. They saw amazing miracles, similar to the first set of miracles that we saw back in chapter 17, when they brought their blind and their lame and their halt and their maimed, their afflicted in any kind, since Jesus wanted to heal them since he has compassion upon you, caregivers. But that was just the beginning of this ministry of miracles. And what miracles followed? The ones that were so great that it took great faith to behold them? The miracle of real prayer. The miracle of the ministering of angels. The miracle of being purified by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. The miracle of being transfigured of being made into someone like Jesus. That does require great faith. And it's the kind of faith that the Lord is helping each of us to develop. I pray that we can exercise faith in that set of miracles because it's the kind we can be engaged in week by week and day by day through our prayer, through the sacrament, through church, through the Holy Ghost, Repentance and covenant-making, Aaronic ordinances, Melchizedek ordinances, transfigured by the power and light of God. He is the light of our world, and I pray we can be the light of his. I am so grateful for these incredible chapters. I bear witness of the light of the world. I bear witness of the compassionate Christ. Noise it abroad. Tell the world. Let people know that they can come and exercise this same faith and rejoice in these same miracles. The Savior's ministry will continue on through the rest of 3 Nephi. It continues on today. He is as eager now as he ever was then to tarry with us if we would simply ask him to stay a little longer.